The following sermon is brought to you by New Covenant Community Church, a Bible-based church located on Route 62 east of Johnstown, Ohio. To learn about New Covenant Community Church, visit www.new-covenant.org. Again, that is new-covenant.org. Now, enjoy the message. I want you to be taking your Bibles. I would invite you to be taking your Bibles to the book of Acts, the fourth chapter. I want to invite you to God's house today. We certainly hope that you find the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to be your soft place to land. And the reason that you can traverse this life without worry, not without trouble. We certainly will have trouble, but we hope that you can go through trouble with good cheer, knowing that he indeed has overcome this world and all the tribulations in it. Acts chapter 4 is where we can be going to. I heard a humorous, funny story this week of a man who worked at a zoo. He was a zookeeper. And one of the gorillas, the only gorilla that this zoo had, died in the zoo, the the gorilla exhibit. And funds were tight for this particular zoo. So rather than being able to afford another gorilla for this exhibit, they thought rather that they would simply buy a gorilla suit and ask the man that normally tended to the care of the gorilla to get inside of the suit and to do his best job to pretend. And he was rather embarrassed by this, and even though he was the one that was the caretaker of this animal, uh, he still felt like he would do a very poor job of carrying out the task of acting out to a gorilla. But sure enough, he does it. He gets into the exhibit, and he starts dancing around and making funny noises, doing the things that he had seen the gorilla that he had previously been the caretaker for doing. Uh, But much to his surprise and much to his dismay, he accidentally stumbled into the lion's cage. He was very stern, he was very fearful of this, and he started wailing and screaming, thinking that for sure this, this lion was going to come and just rip this costume open and eat the man that was inside the costume. And then, even much more to his, to his surprise, the lion looks at him and says, Man, be quiet, we're both going to get fired if you keep wailing like this. <laughs> now, that is certainly a funny and cutesy story that deals with what we'll be talking about today, which is hypocrisy and how God deals with hypocrisy. And although that is a humorous story, I don't at all want us to confuse the humor of that with the the dreadful, serious weight with which God deals with this thing called hypocrisy. So if you're in the book of Acts, chapter 4, you can be looking and to find your way to verse 32. We've been in the book of Acts for a while and will continue to be as we intend, should the Lord tarry and allow us to go through the book of Acts in its entirety, we will do that, certainly taking multiple breaks like we will next week for special events and different kinds of things, Christmas and certain things that will be as the Spirit leads, has us to preach from this pulpit. But we've been in the book of Acts and we've seen some neat stuff. We've seen the trustworthiness of God. We've seen how God birthed the church through Pentecost. We see how the Holy Spirit is absolutely vital for gospel proclamation. We've seen numerous things. We've seen the first rounds of persecution that we've been focusing on the past several weeks. And we've seen it happen as it always does, that the church becomes stronger as a result of this kind of persecution. And in verse 32 of chapter 4, we see this beautiful backdrop. That is the backdrop to what we'll be preaching today, this amazing 
place in which the church was. And we know from having heard what we heard last week that Peter and John have been released from having been in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those people. The church now consists of thousands of people, not exactly sure on the number, but somewhere in the ballpark likely of 15, 10 to 15, perhaps 20,000 people now represent the actual church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 32, we hear of this amazing backdrop that'll be what we'll see today as we continue on. Now, it says in verse 32, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anything among them, anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet." And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyrene, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So I hope you see thus far what's happening is that, first off, it's kind of interesting to note that this group of people, these believers, have instantaneously solved issues of poverty with the way that they were bringing funds to the apostles and entrusting them to distribute it to as people had need. And we see this amazing, wonderful thing of this one heart, one soul, the multitudes together of the believers sharing all things in common. It was a great, great time for the church. Things were literally wonderful but there's a word that comes up next in your bibles in chapter 5 and it is the word but and we know that to be a terrible word knowing what comes next knowing that this but this hypocrisy that we'll be learning about next is the thing that happens in front of this previously beautiful backdrop and we will see how god deals with this thing chapter 5 verse 1 but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now, I usually don't read too many church growth books because most of them are unbiblical in nature and I just don't make it a habit to really read any of them. But of the ones that I have gone through or even a couple that I've read in their entirety, what I can tell you is that at no point in any part of those church growth books was there ever a section or even a subsection or even the idea of don't forget to preach to the people that when the church grows that God will kill people. Okay, That's never been a part of anything of any of those books that I have ever ever heard but it is in the word of god 
We believe God's word to be true, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, perfect and completely without errors. So as such, it's important that we understand these things. It's important that you and I understand with the backdrop of the last portion of Acts chapter 4 and understanding why God went about how the things happened that we just saw in Acts chapter 5. So if you would please look back to verse 1 as we take it section by section, as we be fed of God's word today. Verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now it's important for us to take note of right out of the gate here that what is not happening is as if these believers were required to sell everything and give everything. That was not the point here. That is not the sin that they gave only part of it. It was within their prerogative, which we'll see even more clearly in a moment. It was within their prerogative to not sell it. It was within their prerogative to sell it and keep all of the funds. It was within their prerogative to sell it and give part of the funds and keep a part for themselves. The thing that was a sin, as we'll see, was the hypocrisy of them marching themselves into the temple, laying funds down, expecting to receive the praise and glory of man as having given all that they got from the sale of this land. So it was not this legalistic God waiting to crunch them for not having given all of the proceeds of the land. I hope you see that and hope you see it clearly. It was the lie, it was the hypocrisy that, re- that came up in their heart that was the real issue here. It was within their prerogative to do any of this. So the, the application right out of the gate for us is, is really quite simple. It's simply to be real and act honestly. We should all be very, very afraid if we were to ever do anything in our Christian walk as a means to get glory from other people when it's false, when it's, I mean, it's really wrong, even if it is true, even if, even if Ananias and Sapphira gave everything of the proceeds of the land, it was wrong for them to do it for the purpose of receiving glory, but particularly so when they threw a lie into it also. So the, it's very simple for us as a church. We ought to be real and act honestly. If you're a mean, greedy, mean, old curmudgeon, you ought to act that way in church, okay? I mean, you ought to just be real. You know, just be real. We ought to be real with one another, with the struggles that we're facing, with the things that we're going through. We ought to take off this persona that we have in church, especially when it comes to this glorifying of oneself, seeking glory for all eyes to be turned to us. We are no more demonic than when we have that kind of attitude because it's the exact kind of attitude that we know the devil himself had previous to being thrown out of heaven. And we have these actions of Ananias and Sapphira being contrasted with this Joseph, or however you pronounce his name. He was nicknamed Barnabas, which that name means son of encouragement. That was the nickname that the apostles had given this guy. And we know that he did the same thing. He sold some land and he gave the proper amount. He did it because it's what he wanted to do. He wasn't doing it for the purpose of gaining this kind of glory. He was an encourager. He was somebody, and if you've ever noticed somebody that really encourages you, think right now about someone in your life that really, really encourages you. They'll usually be a pretty humble, not thinking about themselves person. They're usually someone, the reason they've been encouraging you is because they're thinking about you. They're thinking about how they can build you up, how they can be praying for you, how they can love and serve you. And that's the contrast that we have between Ananias and Sapphira and this Barnabas character. We ought to be real and act honestly. If you believe it, say amen. 
And we see this teaching affirmed by Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 6, our Lord says, Take heed or be warned that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. He says, don't do it like, which it hadn't happened yet at the time, but Jesus says, don't do it like Ananias and Sapphira did. Be real and act honestly. Don't seek your own glory. And Jesus continues on to say, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have their glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and that your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. So, if we have seen that hypocrisy is bad, which certainly we have, hopefully we have seen that, what causes it? What caused Ananias and Sapphira to do this thing? Look to verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it sold, was it not in your own control? In other words, Peter says, when, when you had the land, it was yours to do with what you wanted to do with it, Ananias. Why would you, why would you take this thing and then skew it around into something that you're going to try to lie to God about this? And the reason it happened is because Satan has filled your heart, Peter says. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So the answer is pretty clear of how this type of hypocrisy comes about. It comes about when Satan enters someone's heart. And that raises a very important question. Of It, it makes us think, okay, were Ananias and Sapphira saved? Or Sapphira, rather, is her name. Were they saved? Were, were they believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because we have this, okay, were they filled with the demon? Which we know biblically there's a model for unbelievers to be completely infilled with evil in that kind of way. Or we also know that for believers that they cannot be infilled but influenced. So which was it for Ananias and Sapphira? Were they filled with this kind of demon or were they simply influenced by the devil speaking these things, these wicked things, into their heart? Uh, the interpretation of John MacArthur, among others, has been that they believe that they were believers. That they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and their rationale for that is we saw in uh, Acts 4, verse 31, part B, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There's some language there that makes us think that those believers that together, that they were all true and legitimate believers. But, and that's certainly important when it comes to where they're spending eternity, where Ananias and Sapphira are right now. That question is certainly very important. But when it comes down to what we're seeing God give us this morning from his word is simply this is, it makes me wonder, what was that like when they were at the closing table with the realtor for that piece of land? When was it that Ananias and Sapphira decided to, to conceive this wicked thing to try and lie to God? What I'd like to simply submit to you this morning, church, is that it is the devil's objective, and this is our second point this morning, it is the devil's objective to turn you into a hypocrite. That is the devil's goal, that is the devil's plan, and it worked with Ananias and Sapphira. 
Again, not being 100% certain, at least to best of my knowledge, of whether or not they were believers. But the thing that is very clear is that he was looking for a very small opening. The devil was looking for anything. I, I don't know if it happened at the closing table with the realtor sitting there. I wonder if it happened after the realtor went out the door, if they even had realtors back then. I wonder when it was that, that they had a, this evil thought, this evil influence that we could keep this money and have financial gain ourselves and yet pretend as though we've given it all from the sale of this land and be soaking in the full glory of the apostles thanking us for the money that we've just contributed. And when you really understand the biblical context here, you realize how foolish this was because, again, remember, just from the numbers we've seen early on in the book of Acts, the church at this point is thousands in Jerusalem. Okay, let's just say thousands. I don't know how many thousands, but it was at least in the thousands. And you've got all the people coming together to put their money at the apostles' feet. You really think that they had financial need? As best we can tell, the church probably conservatively conservatively from that many people coming together to share in one another's needs laying money at the apostles feet to make sure that there was no one among the entire church that had any kind of need conservatively there would have been in today's numbers millions upon millions upon millions of dollars at their disposal to ensure that no one in the church had need and yet here come Ananias and Sapphira thinking that they're going to gain this kind of glory from men having lied to God they had become the hypocrite that the devil had influenced them into being. And it was simply a small, insignificant, kind of dumb thing. Church, what I want to tell you today is that when, when the devil seeks to influence you in a particular kind of way, yes, even us as believers, it will be over something really dumb and small. When, when the devil wants to come against your marriage, it will be the argument. Have you ever noticed when you argue with your spouse, you never even remember what it started as? And it can blow up into this huge thing. How many marriages, I wonder, have ended when they started over something that they can't even remember? It was a small, insignificant thing, a small, insignificant window that the devil saw that he used to influence us and to influence them. Let's be weary and watchful of those things. Just this week, and this is no joke, actually, I was walking through the church and there was a garter snake in the foyer sitting right there in the front of the middle of the door and now everybody's looking around their chair like oh, I don't want there to be a snake in here and it's funny seeing all your faces right now but I wish you could see what the pastor could see right now it's kind of humorous and uh and I'm thinking man how did this little booger get in here I mean a little 10 inch 12 inch little garter snake you came to a church in the middle of a cornfield get used to it okay You're just, you'll be fine and and I, as I start to chase him out he slithers underneath the door in the same place that he came in and I'm like how did he get through that thing that little snake went through this tiny tiny little hole tiny and I'm thinking to myself boy that'll preach that'll preach real good because that, that I mean it's it's like that much space between the weather stripping and the bottom of the, I mean no more room than there is between the door your front door at your home and now all of you are worried that there's snakes in your home when you go home but but it's not like there's this huge gaping hole it was just a small thing for that snake to slither in and so it will be when the devil comes against us as well listen here's a verse that we have quoted numerous times have read numerous times it would be worth all of us memorizing by heart 1 Peter 5 verse 8 be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour it's not just a passive thing he's looking for those small opportunities to get into your marriage 
He's looking for those small opportunities to get into this thing between you and your children that would make you inefficient in being a godly witness for them. It's a small, insignificant way in which that snake will come in. So what I did, you all would have been really proud of me. I got the broom out of that closet faster than I can draw a pistol. And he came in a small way, but I gave him a big way out. And, and it just made me think, you know, some of us need to get the broom out. We need to get the broom of prayer out in our homes to make sure that there's not any little things sneaking in. We need to get the broom of praise out, of worship in our homes, singing with our voices to our Savior in our homes. It's done time that we get that broom out, church. Somebody say amen. It's time that we collectively as a church are a people of prayer, a people of worship, a people of vigilance, a people that is sober and looking for those small kinds of things to make sure that we would not become a hypocrite in the exact same fashion, the exact same manner in which Ananias and Sapphira did. So, we know what hypocrisy is. We know how it happened. What does God do with it? Look to verse 5, if you would please. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now moving on to verse 7. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in. Now let me just pause right there. and That means that it took probably about three hours for the young men to bury him, which you think of three young guys digging a hole about how deep they would bury somebody. That's about right. Um, some pastors have said that's a good rationale to have three-hour church services. I'm not sure I have that biblical interpretation, so somebody say praise the Lord. And, but it, we know that it was a three-hour period from the time that Ananias is going out to get buried That Sapphira comes in, moving on, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, they buried her by her husband. Somebody say, whoa. Pastor Ben, you know, the God of the Old Testament is so harsh and so strict with sin and is such a judge and 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 there seems to be such a disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament because the God of the New Testament is so different. I'm not sure he is. I think that maybe just perhaps he's the exact same God. Pastor Ben, can God really just kill people? Just done? Yes. The account that we just read was not the first time. And I don't believe at all that it's the last either. We know that this is not the only circumstance. There are even times where Scripture gives us the warning of these things we've studied before with respect to the Lord's Supper. When we take the bread and the juice and it represents His body and blood, we know that the Bible teaches, 1 Corinthians 11.30, that when we take that flippantly, when somebody would not handle those things properly with the proper reverence of remembering what those things represent, it says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Many are dead. God has killed people based on being flippant with those things that represent the blood and the body of his son. 
that has purchased redemption for all who will repent. Somebody say amen. And this is why I believe, church, that it is vital. It is absolutely vital that sin be dealt with properly in the church. It does no one any service by being lax about sin in the church. And we even from Scripture have a model that Scripture gives us about how to go about dealing with sin inside of the church. I'll give you these examples and then I'll give you the main point of what this is. Matthew 18, verse 15 Jesus instructs, he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. This was by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. This was an Old Testament thing you will see scattered out throughout the entirety of the New, Old and New Testament. And Jesus is simply saying, use that model when it comes to a sinning brother. Go to them by yourself first. If they repent, you've gained a brother. If not, take with you one or two other people. Verse 17, and he who refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. There was a process through which Jesus gave the church of how to deal with sin inside the church. Now, I have never been part of a church service where someone has stood up front and has said, this person is in sin and one person went to them privately and they did not hear them. And then on this date, two other people went with them and that person did not hear those three people on this date. And now we're here to stand and tell it to the church. And we'll see whether or not they hear it from the church. And if they don't hear the church on it, then they would be treated as if they were an unbeliever. I've never been of a part of a church service like that. I hope I never am. But what I am saying is that we are a church that must be committed to these kinds of things. And if you're saying, oh, then we better not sin. Yes, that is absolutely the point. We must be very diligent not to sin. Listen to what Paul said when he was using this model that Jesus gave. 2 Corinthians 13, 1-2. <clears throat> he says to the church at Corinth, he says, This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. I have told you before... And foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before that to all the rest, that if I come, I will not spare. In other words, Paul says, if I visit your church, we're going to deal with sin and we're going to do it by the book. We're going to do it exactly how Jesus said that we're going to do it. We're going to go through those steps of what people, I believe it was in the early 1900s, mid-1900s, and even now, people will reference it as church discipline. I'm not sure I really like even that term, but what I will say is that what the Bible says we must do. So tying this all in together with what we know of what we've already seen with Ananias and Sapphira, and seeing how God deals with this kind of hypocrisy, we are to be real and act honestly. We see that right out of the gate. The devil's objective is to turn you into a hypocrite. And finally, God's objective is the purity of his church. God is keenly, exuberantly, passionately interested in the purity of his church. And you say, Pastor Ben, why is God so intense? So intense that he would kill Ananias and Sapphira over this kind of sin. 
And even so much so that Jesus would give us this model of how to deal with sin inside the church, even meaning that if you got to a point where somebody was just bent on their sin, that you tell the whole church, say, hey, this person is in this sin, and if they don't hear the church, we're going to treat them as if they're an unbeliever. Love them, yes. Pray for them, yes. Preach the gospel to them, certainly. But they are not a part of this church. They are not in this fellowship of the believers. We are going to treat them as if they are an unbeliever based on this unrepentant, persistent sin. Why is God so intense about those things? I'm glad you asked. Look to verse 11, if you would please, as we see the reason for this. Verse 11, so great fear came upon all the church, you think? So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. That was simply a piece of the temple. Verse 13, yet none of the rest, listen to this, and I hope if you're a believer this morning, you're paying close attention because this is vital. Yet none of the rest dared to join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So let's just understand what's happening there for a moment. The unbelievers in that day, they would look at the church and say, I really respect that group. They have solved poverty among thousands of people in a millisecond. They are a dynamic people. They are a passionate people. They are an obedient people to their cause. This is awesome what these people have done. I respect them, but I don't want to have anything to do with them. I heard about those Ananias and Sapphira characters that God, their God just killed at the feet of Peter. And you might think to yourself, well, Pastor Ben, wouldn't that be antithetical? Wouldn't that be against the great commission that God has given us to reach the lost, to go and preach the gospel? And to which I would say in my own human thinking, yes, that would seem like that, that way of being that people driving down 62 would think to themselves, man, I, I respect New Covenant Community Church. They, they, they have solved the issue of people having lack and need among that church, but I don't want to have anything to do with that church. We would think that that would be a really bad thing to have people think thinking to have unbelievers thinking about a group of believers but oh dear friend look what it says in verse 14 and believers were increasingly added to the lord multitudes someone say multitudes multitudes of both men and women so that they brought their sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Whoa. What, what, a, what an amazing thing to see that, man, maybe, maybe the church for the past however many decades has been like completely wrong and trying to be hip and cool and, and, and not that different from the world. Maybe when a group of believers gets to the point where God is so operating in that group of people that, other, that unbelievers say, I don't want to have anything to do with that group. Maybe when, maybe when a church gets to that point that that is when the mighty hand of God begins to add believers unto himself in multitudes. Maybe this smoke machine and skinny jeans kind of way and doing things and if i ever wear skinny jeans somebody just shoot me just put me out of my misery okay maybe going that route when a church grows then then man then humankind can say we've done this but when you've got a group of believers that say 
people respect us, but they don't want to have anything to do with us. And yet people are coming in droves because it's the Holy Spirit of God that's drawing them. It's His blood that is redeeming them. And then at the end of the day, they can, all they can say is, God is doing this. Everyone else thinks we're crazy, and yet people are coming in droves to know this Lord, to know this Savior, to be a part of this church. I hope you see it, and I hope you see it clearly. But when we ask ourselves the question, why would God make it like this? Why wouldn't God make it such that we are, as a church are to be aimed at making ourselves as warm and, and as amazing and as welcoming and, as, and so that a complete sinner can come in and feel comfortable? Why, why wouldn't God make that the aim and rather make it such that we are to be a called out and a separate people? And only relying on God's Spirit to be able to draw mankind unto Himself. And only for His blood to be able to bring people into this true, saved, redeemed state where their sins are washed. The thing that I think about that I hope you've thought about too is that when Jesus came to this earth, He came with a mission. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to die on a cross and to take the punishment that all of us deserve. Like he came to do some stuff. And he done did it, church. Somebody say amen. He rose victorious from the grave. He came to accomplish some things. He came. He did it. And when he ascended back into heaven, he left us with the great commission. He left the church with this mission saying, you are the church. You're my bride. You're my followers. Continue on this mission. Continue on these, this, this thing that I've done. Carry this message to the ends of the earth. Go and preach the gospel, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. You go in church, you go do this thing now, Jesus says. So if you're thinking to yourself, especially if you don't know the Lord today, and you're thinking to yourself, what, what kind of mean, harsh, judgmental God would kill people because they submitted to this temptation in this way? What I would submit to you, it was so that it would bring the church in this proper place where then multitudes would come to be saved. So bringing it really close to home, what I'd like to say to you today, dear friend, who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, is that you ask yourself, why would God kill Ananias and Sapphira for having allowed this hypocrisy to come in their heart? Maybe it's just so that you might get saved. Maybe God is so concerned with the holiness and the purity of his church that in his sovereignty, he wants that vehicle to be the thing that would be so contrasted different than the world that you would see those things. And by his spirit, not because you are attracted to the clothes I was wearing or the fog machines that we got or whatever, but because his spirit drew you, convicted you of your sin, and then you've been washed by his blood because you've repented of sin and trusted alone in the Savior, changing forever where you'll spend eternity. So do I see a, a God that is a judge in this? Absolutely yes. Do I see a loving God who was making his church pure to be the vehicle through which, through which multitudes? How long does it take to meet multitudes? I don't even know how many a multitude is. They didn't really cover that in seminary. I'm guessing it's a lot. How long will it take if, if we all died today? How, how many... How long would it take for us to meet the multitudes that got saved as a result of God's Spirit doing the work and making the church such that they couldn't do things in their own strength? 
And thus, only God being able to get the glory in this awesome thing that we just understood of God being concerned, keenly concerned with the holiness of his church. How, how long would it take for us to meet all those people in heaven that were saved as a result of those things? And I'll simply leave you with it, whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were saved. I'll, we think of what Abraham said all those years ago, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I trust that whatever the judgment was that he made was perfect. It was an absolutely perfect judgment. And, uh, and, and we don't know for sure, but what I would like to leave you with simply this morning is, have you been drawn by the Holy Spirit of God? Are, are you here just as a social club? Is this, are, you just here, are you just here for some other thing? But, or, or have you been drawn by the Holy Spirit? Have you been convicted of your sin? And do you recognize and understand that Jesus Christ is the only one? that can save you. We're going to have a baptism in a moment. So David, where are you at, brother? He's back there. You can make your way around. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are good and awesome. And it is completely, Lord, we, we, we humble ourselves to recognize that it is you, the king of heaven and earth, that has commanded your church to be holy Father, remind us that that is not moral expenditure of energy to be that, but that it is a will submitted to you, a soul that has been washed and redeemed by the sacrifice that you made for us all those years ago that is still saving people today. We love you for these things in Jesus' name. And all the church says... Amen. Uh, for those that are helping with music, if you guys would come now, we're going to now switch gears and go into a baptism at this point. As David makes his way in, as you guys come up, we'll be worshiping again in just a moment. If you don't know this Savior, I always want to extend the invite to you every time that we gather as believers. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. This is something that you must attend to. This is something that you absolutely must you don't know when your life will be required of you. I'll give you a hand, David, as you come on in. And, uh, and this is a special thing to have David joining us in the baptism waters right here. You can go turn around and have a seat. Because, because I know, having heard David's story, that the devil had other plans for this young man right here. And, uh, man, I can hardly speak when I think of the stories you shared with me, brother. Yeah. And it has culminated with him being drawn of God's spirit. There was a time where, God, where the devil had him in a place where he would have had nothing to do with the church. But because the Holy Spirit of God has drawn him over these years, and he has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we're here to baptize him today. And how awesome is that? So, David, I love you, brother. And uh, not only just as a friend, but as a fellow father of young daughters, we can shoot teenage boys together, man. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> And it's, when I miss, you'll be right there. To, oh, it's going to be great, man. It's going to be great. So, but to raise our families, and, uh, and I'm just so glad that even, even through the mess and all the stuff that you've been through, that God has brought you to this place where you now want to be baptized because you're committing your faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, David, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Absolutely. Do you believe that through his sacrifice only and trusting in that, turning from sin and trusting in him is the only way that a person can be saved? Yes. And have you done that? Yes. Amen. Then as your brother in the faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Please stand with me. This is a working of God, not of any man. Somebody say amen. amen. And let it continue to be so as we, the church, strive after this holiness that God is keenly interested in, the purity of his church. I love you all so much. If you don't know Jesus, please come talk to me before you leave here today. Let's worship together.